Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Do you know, the world's a funny place at the moment. There's some stuff happening all around about which makes you think and makes you contemplate about what's going on and where the inspiration is and where the hope is. I'm so excited today that we can be talking to one of the beacons of hope in global education, Andy Hargraves. I first came across his work significantly with his book, Sustainable Leadership, which opened my eyes to a whole new world of thinking about the way in which we, we motivate, we inspire, we influence and we direct others to achieve willingly the task of the individual and collective good. Amico, I'm excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 8 sponsor? Edapt Education brings together all your student data into one platform. Improve the growth and well-being of all students in your school. Edapt is offering their learner profile and school data platform free for a term for the first time exclusive to you, our Game Changers listeners. Simply visit edapt.education forward slash game changes. That's edapt.education forward slash game changes. Let's go. Yeah, I'm terribly excited as well, Phil. Uh, how is uh, your morning treating you so far? Oh, mate, I, I, you know, usually we exchange nonsense about tofu and, and almond milk and <laughs> soy fluffuccinos in uh, in the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy. I'm just thinking about people in Afghanistan at the moment. I'm thinking about yeah. people with Delta variants going on and I, I, I'm just feeling very, very grateful for the opportunities that I've got and I've got the people around me, mate, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's a very heavy time in the world and uh, there's so much going on. Uh, that's impacting upon people in, in many different ways. But let's just keep some our thoughts with the, the women, the children, the Hazara people uh, of Afghanistan today because uh, their world has now changed once again, yeah. pro probably forever. And uh, let's keep them in our thoughts. But like you, Phil, I, I too am uh, terribly excited about our guest for Series 8 of The Game Changers, Andy Hargraves. I'm going to get straight to the very first question, Andy, and that question is one that we ask all of our guests. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your life story to date, how you've gotten to where you are today. Sure, Arjuna. Well, uh, welcome everybody to this uh, podcast. I'm uh, delighted to be able to spend some time with Adriano and Phil and with all of you. I published a memoir last year called Moving, a memoir on education and social mobility. And if you want to follow in more detail, in a way, what my life narrative is and, and what sense I can make of it and you can make of it, that, that's, that's a good place to start. I grew up in a, in a mill town, a community and a working class community in the north of England. I had a very inspiring teacher when I was in primary school, who really from the age of about 10 and 11, in my case, uh, inspired me to want to go into education and to be a great teacher and to inspire other people. And then when I went into secondary school uh, on the other side of town, 
uh, I met the evil twins of my best uh, <laughs> primary school teacher who seemed to uh, dedicate their lives to making all their students as miserable as they possibly could. And so for me, education, when I went on, was about, was about righting the wrongs and, and trying to do the right thing. In university, I fell in love uh, twice. Uh, well, not with two different people, uh, especially <laughs> not at the same time, but with, uh, I fell in love with my wife, who I'm uh, uh, now married to and have been married to for uh, 40 odd years. Mm. And, and I fell in love with a thing called sociology. I went to university to study something else, but, but sociology helped me make sense of, if you like, the social class experience that I'd, that I'd grown up with and my engagement with a, with a school system that was uh, geared, inflected more towards the middle class. Then we thought of disadvantage, less in terms of gender terms and sexuality terms and race terms, and, and more in, in, in social class and economic uh, terms. And um, because of this influence, I think, the way that I see education now uh, having uh, moved from England to Canada, spent 15 years in Canada, then 15 in the US. I'm actually in the US today as I'm talking to you at this moment in the home of my colleague and friend, Dennis Shirley, and then back to Canada in the last two or three years to be with my uh, grandchildren, is uh, almost all my work is uh, really about trying to help people, um, particularly teachers and leaders, see the connections between their work, their world, and themselves. Mm -hmm. and, and so where is, where is your work in yourself? How does that connect to you as a human being, your identity, your mission, your purpose, your, your, your passion? How does it connect to what's going on in the world around you, the kind of things that you opened with, uh, frankly, Adriano? And, um, and what does that mean about about how we should be thinking about changing our work and responding to all the people who are in front of us and the lives that they're experiencing in the world around them. Andy, there's so much in there. Thank you for sharing that with us. Towards the end there, you started to open up a little bit about that motivation that you've got to help others. Would you say that that's your life purpose? And if so, when did that become apparent for you? Well, uh, uh, people tell me looking back on uh, me as a child that I always had a bit of a sanctimonious streak to me. And, <laughs> um, and I think that is still there. And that goes along with a kind of effervescent ADHD, uh, enthusiastic, let's go out and do something, everybody, a streak. So it's a bizarre, it's a bizarre combination. And I say it's always been there that the that the eight-year-old Andy Hargreaves is still living somewhere inside the 70-year-old uh, Andy Hargreaves, and I, I'm okay with that now. I think I fought it on and off for some times, as we all do, but eventually we settle for who we are and we, we draw on the best of it and try and put aside, put aside the worst of it. But I definitely think that growing up in a working-class family where, in a way, among three brothers, I, I was the lucky one who passed the exam at age 11, in the year before my father died. I think if I'd taken that exam the year after my father died or the year during my father died, I'd never be here with you on this program. And I'd have joined the same fate as my two brothers. I went to university on the other side of the country. They went into factories at the bottom of the hill. Um, and I was always aware of that disparity and, and, and struggling with that disparity and trying to bring together the world of the school and, and the world of the people 
around me who I still care deeply about, not now only just in social class terms, but also in terms of all other dimensions of, of equity and inclusion. I think one thing that's really important for us now, Phil, is uh, if we have a particular identity, it's good to be passionate about others who have that, that identity and in a way to, if you can, to be an advocate, a spokesperson for them, if you have those gifts and those gifts and talents. But but there's also a danger in, in that. Do trans people only advocate for trans people? Do uh, immigrants only advocate for immigrants? Do Asians only, uh, only advocate for, for Asians? Uh, do women only advocate for women? Uh, rather, can, can we, in our best moments, draw on our own struggles and, so, and at some points our own suffering and, and experiences of, of injustice in order to connect with other people's suffering and other people's experiences of injustice. So under populism uh, and, and the governments who advance it around the world, they divide different kinds of suffering against each other, suffering of white working class people against the suffering of immigrants and refugees, for example. And I think emotionally and morally, uh, a, a, a big purpose and a big task for us right now in this world with these multiple crises going on, um, uh, not just a pandemic where essential workers have suffered the most, but uh, Black Lives Matter, the threat against uh, democracy, the devastation of the earth where poor people suffer more than more than wealthy people. And I think our goal, our quest is, is to try and bring together the people who experience uh, disadvantage, uh, oppression, marginalization, and not set them against each other. Yeah, and, and, and it's so difficult in a world where the only real tools for interconnection and interdependence that we have right now are tools of social media that were all constructed to help us to identify how we're different from people and to force us into false binaries and to create polemics that, that bring out the worst in people rather than the, the best in people. You know, and so I look at the work of colleagues like Adriano, who's just an absolute pioneer in the use of social media to, to do exactly what you're talking about, to bring people together and to find the hope and to find the way forward in that respect. Look, and it, listening to your, your story there, I think there are three stories of, of social mobility uh, in this conversation and, and three different ways around that. And I'm sort of sitting there listening and thinking about my father and his 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 examinations in, in the UK at the age of 11 that got him to a much, much better place. Um, yeah. And, you know, one of his brothers wasn't so lucky and one of his brothers was even more lucky in and around it. And you just sit there and you go, How's that, how, how is that about serendipity or happenstance or something as cruel as a, as, a, as a Darwinian sorting technique imposed on, you know, 11-year-olds? Uh, you know, surely we can do better things with that. And then I look at a, a career like yours, which has just sought to advance education specifically and generally around the world. You're now the director of Shanine at the, at the, at the I hope I've said that correctly, at the right. university. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good guess on my part. The director of Shanine. We're halfway between a fine white wine and a soft, fluffy material. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So you're now the director of Shanine at the University of Ottawa. Um, uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what somebody like you with a, with a path in life like yours, when you get to this stage and you've got this role, how are you bringing your sense of purpose into it? And then if you want to talk about deep inquiry and practice along the way, we'd really love you to do that as well too. Okay. Well, uh, Shanine happened 
also in a way fortuitously, I moved back to Canada in 2018 uh, because we wanted to be near our grandchildren before they got too old to enjoy us and we got too old to enjoy them, basically. And it's as simple as that. I retired a bit early and uh, there's, there's all kinds of existential gremlins that accompany the moment of uh, retirement. And, and there's, there's a number of them. What will I do? Who will, who will I be? What happens if my career disappears? What happens if I move to the frozen north of Ottawa, where we knew nobody almost? And um, I'm invisible. You know, a, a, a plot in many novels, if they want to get rid of a character, is they just say, and then they went to Canada. And, and it's, it's self-evident. You never need to talk about them again. You know, nothing terrible is going to happen to them, but but we don't need to talk about them anymore. They, it's better than killing them off. They, they go to Canada, they'll be fine. Nothing exciting will happen. So I would tell people about this. I'd, uh, my family, friends, colleagues, and say, well, well, you know, I'm thinking about retirement, but what if I go north and I disappear? What if all the applause stops? What if I have a blank calendar what what if it all comes to an end and then people say don't be daft you know you're, you're like you're like you're famous people want you to do uh all kinds of things game changers will be asking you to do endless numbers of podcasts <laughs> and um and i said no, i really need to think about this i really need to imagine the worst case scenario and see if i could live with it so i did it took a few weeks and at the end of it i decided if it was all over uh, that was okay. I'd, I'd had a good run. I'd had a lot of impact on people's lives, some of it positive. I'd done good work. I'd, I'd enjoyed it. I'd, I'd main, mainly felt, felt fulfilled. I'd had good people around me. I'd helped them develop in lots of cases. And if it all came to an end, but okay, I, I love to hike. I'd hike more. I'd still write books. Nobody would read them, but I'd still, but I'd still write them. And uh, and I'd be with with people who love me and and people I love as well. So once I sorted that out, everything was fine. And then I moved north to Ottawa, and uh, with the university, just uh, negotiated a very open ended uh, small contract of um, of uh, one day a week with no duties, but the idea with, that we might make some things happen. And, you know, I did initially, I brought in a, a couple of projects, that's uh, money for them and impact. But I began, I began to meet some new colleagues, people in their 30s and 40s, uh, who were just excellent colleagues, began to work with them. Many of them were in the, a number of them were in the technology space, but they're in other spaces as well. They're, they're the kind of people I'm drawn to, which is that they're positive and pragmatic, but they're also critical. They're not terminally critical, so they've got nothing positive to say. And, and they're not sort of hooray, yippee, jolly, holly stick, jo jolly hockey sticks as well. So this community then started to form. And in the middle along came the pandemic. And in the middle of the, in the early stages of the pandemic, it seems a long time ago now, uh, people got kind of exuberant about digital before everybody got utterly sick to death with, with Zoom fatigue. And, and the kids running around like crazy and turning their icons off. And uh, as my grandson says, 
best thing about learning with technology is you can walk out of class and your teacher can't stop you. <laughs> and you know, he's he's eight years old and he's got the hang of that. But before that, you know, the, the, the Gates Foundation, lots of politicians, everyone thought, this is great. Who needs walls? Who needs schools? Who needs who needs physical buildings? Well, we do need schools, we need community, we need children to be looked after why their parents can go to work. We need to develop identities. We need to do all these things. And we felt that nobody was really talking about that in the tech space in any kind of organized way. So we formed this group of uh, quite different people with different interests to uh, address those questions and really to talk about technology in a positive and open way, but also to develop a position on ethical technology, a position to guide schools, to guide governments, to guide technology companies, actually, as as well. So that, that's really how it took out. We're still there. We still exist. We're bringing in some interesting grants that, you know, come back in about four or five years and we'll see where it's gone. We don't have big foundation money because... Um, because people aren't completely sure if this is an investment they want right now, because it's not like gung, gung-ho machine, uh, machines, uh, 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 programs, apps, and what have you. Andy, it's, it's interesting listening to that, because I just want to just pivot to, to try and explore the purpose of deep inquiry and practice a little bit in your work. But you've just touched upon the piece around technology and how uh, many of us, including myself, were uh, and continue to be excited about its possibility when it comes to education and and, and how it can perhaps bridge those inequities that we've been speaking about earlier. Although, of course, what the pandemic has highlighted is the great inequity around the digital divide that occurs across the globe, particularly here in our our country in Australia, for for people in more kind of regional or rural areas and and our Indigenous people as well, and and their access to the right bandwidth and the technology that they'll be able to be connected. I think one of the, the criticisms of technology by those who are really resistant to it is, in fact, whether or not they can engage young people in deep inquiry and practice through the use yeah. of technology. What are yeah. your thoughts of that? Well, uh, my colleague, Dennis Shirley, whose office I'm in right now, he's not here, uh, mm-hmm. but in, in the house that is, uh, he and I have just written a book on uh, student engagement, mm-hmm. uh, five paths of uh, student engagement, blazing the trail to learning and success. And one of the things we take up is uh, not just uh, technology, but but deep learning. So uh, many people are writing about deep learning now, what the deep inquiry will be will be part of that. So what, what does it mean to be deep? And what, whenever we write or, or do any kind of work, uh, on the one hand, we don't want to be pointy-headed people who get all high mighty with their own ideas and teachers can take it or leave it, uh, nor do we just want to write a set of bullet points and quick takeaways. But rather, we we believe that teachers are smart, certified professionals and can and should deal with the most important and complicated ideas uh, if you teach them well. (laughs) And, um, you know, just as people write, Atul Gawande writes very accessibly about medicine, we, we, we believe we should be doing the same thing in education. So we want to help teachers uh, think deeply and think differently about issues like technology and deep learning. 
Um, with deep learning, people are flying off in various directions thinking, well, it is all about digital or it, it is all about being a facilitator and not a sage on the stage. It is, uh, it is all about world-changing problems like, uh, like, like, like climate change and, um, and things of that nature. But deep learning has a history. Um, and I'm always curious about where things come from. And do you know where deep learning comes from? You probably do. Go on, Andy. Tell us. Go on. Uh, yeah, yeah we're, we're, I'm sitting here listening to you. This is a masterclass. We're just <laughs> keep going, please. Keep going. So, so deep learning comes from AI, actually, comes yeah. from artificial intelligence, and uh, deep deep learning is is about the capacity for machine learning. So, it's really about the capacity of machines to learn how to learn uh, the, themselves. Uh, deep learning then got into higher education and into metacognition. So how it had nothing about, about relevance or world-changing problems or water quality or anything of that kind. It was just, could you ask critical questions? Could you, could you uh, burrow beneath uh, the, the, the surface? The kind of thing that universities uh, believe that they are about and that many of their students don't have when they come and that examinations don't, don't easily measure. So deep learning then got in, into areas like, like metacognition and so on. And then in, in Canada, we, we got a, North America, we got a couple of different views. We've got the views of my colleague, Michael Fullen, who has a thousand schools around the world who are engaged in uh, deep, deep, I mean, they're not his schools, but, but works with a thousand schools engaged in deep learning, understood as engaging kids with their learning to change the world with socially profound questions. Uh, but there's also another Canadian colleague who also has a lot of schools, but, but is less... Um, upfront about them are called Kieran Egan, who wrote a wonderful little book called Learning in Depth. And uh, he said in Learning in Depth, imagine if you're in kindergarten and you go into grade one and you walk on a stage at the beginning of grade one and you are presented with a topic that you will study for every single week, for part of the week, for the rest of your school career. And you don't get to choose what it is. And it might be apples or railways or dust. Dust. But dust has religious connotations. It yeah. has geological connotations. It, it has many connotations. And by the time you get to the age of about eight, you'll probably start knowing more than your teacher does about this particular topic. His job is now to help and support you and facilitate you as you go through it. And... And once you learn about something, he says, you become interested in it. We always think you have to be interested in something to learn about it. But the other way is to say, if we really learn about something, then, then we become profoundly interested in it. And, and the, the point will come where in terms of assessment, you'll collect this in a portfolio, which would now be a digital uh, portfolio, of, uh, of course, where you access and present and show the information in lots of different ways. And of course, it's an extreme example, but, but there are one or two places that do this. But I don't know a teacher who is indifferent to the idea, whether they're violently opposed or passionately supportive. And this, he says, is true depth. We often just use depth as a, as, as a cliche, as be it spending a bit more time on something or doing a detailed uh, project on it. So depth isn't necessarily about relevance, but it can be. 
it is about metacognition, thinking creatively, thinking in interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary terms, and developing the skills of how to uh, present what, what you're learning. And, and digital is part, of, it's not all of that, but it's part of that. We need to use everything uh, we've got available to us. Uh, so, you know, if we need science equipment and vacuum flasks, we, we use those. If we need robots, we use those. If we need uh, various platforms and apps, we use those. Don't get, don't get a fetish about any of them, but be competent and proficient in all of them so that as a teacher, you know what is, and as a self-determined learner, you know what the value added is of any medium. And you go to that when you need it, but you don't privilege it automatically above any other. But this is all based on the kind of notion that, that, that the educator is someone that doesn't stand still, that is open to their continuous learning and unlearning, and that they have to be uh, having giving enough time in, in, in their practice on a frequent basis to engage with this type of level of technology or methodology that's going yeah. to not only enhance their practice, but the possibility of the young people in yeah. their care. Because they've got young people in their care who are going to enter a world where artificial intelligence is going to be walking alongside of them in a workplace in a very pronounced way, you know, in five, 10 years, and it's happening in some industries right, right now. How do we assist those educators who resist this kind of swift advancement in technology and its impact upon their entire toolkit? Yeah. Who, who, are, who are adamant that there is only one way that we should be de delivering this learning, uh, that, that inquiry is not that, yeah. that we want to just simply focus on the knowledge piece uh, yeah. and, and filling those vessels yeah. Uh, and, and that there's still value in, in memorization and in standardization of test, you know, and testing. Yep. Uh, and and, and cause there's a movement in that place as well, you know, across the globe. Right. Uh, and so, so how, how do we help both sides of the coin? Cause I never think it's an either or argument anyway. I think, I think they both have a place in some, some degree, but how do we help the educator to not sit still in the binary thinking of, of how they've always done it yeah. and be open to their own possibility? Well, the easy group is 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 the people who are self-starters, and mainly what you need to do is uh, get out of the way and, and let them get something going, but don't let them take over everything, because sometimes what, what they want to get into is utterly mad and crazy and, um, and can destroy everything. So let them get going a bit, but but not, not the whole hog. Uh, I'd probably be an example of that, actually. So uh, until 2000... Until about five years ago, I was what's known as a Luddite. You, you know who the Luddites were but yeah. because of the place that you're in. Well, my name is Hargreaves. And one mile from my home, a man called James Hargreaves invented the spinning jenny uh, that, that put uh, weavers out of work. Now, now um, Andy, Andy, you're taking me back to about the, the late 1980s when we still used to teach the British Industrial Revolution to Australian school kids. The spinning jenny. You'll be you'll be you'll be talking about steam hammers and things like that soon. Exactly. So it's like you're speaking a foreign language to me, both of you, right now. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Luddites came along and, yeah. and put a hammer in the hand of James Hargreaves and made him destroy his own machines. Mm. Um, I've never been able to trace the ancestry of the two. Hargreaves is a very common name, but I did not get, although I have 40 odd thousand followers on Twitter, I did not get an iPhone until uh, six months ago. Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, I wanted a world without an iPhone, to be absolutely honest. I was the last person uh, when I was working in Canada in a faculty of 200 and odd. I was the very last person to go on voicemail because because I didn't I didn't want to put the telephonists out of work who were and mm -hmm. the admin assistants and so on. So um, I, I'm kind of legendary for being anti-tech uh, in all kinds of ways in, in the past. And, and then in my early 60s, as I started to think about retirement, uh, somebody said something that but really profound. I don't think they thought it was all that profound, but it was to me. And they said, you know, Andy, teachers, when we've retired, we'll always remember our first classes and our last classes. It's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. So then I went away and I thought, well, how do I want my last classes to be? And there was a deep, dark, evil part of me that thought, well, I've probably only got a couple of years to go. Don't need to change anything. Okay, I got good evaluations. It'll tick over nicely. It's always good to look in, into the moral abyss, by the way, because there's no morality without temptation. So, so flirting with the temptation is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, just not, not giving into it is, is the issue. And, and then I thought, no, you know what I'm going to do the last two years, uh, last two or three years, I am going to teach out of my skin. So I am going to learn to teach with technology and see where, how and in what ways it, it, it can have the maximum impact. And I won't go into detail in terms of how I did that, but, but lots of different ways. And in 2015, to everybody's astonishment, Boston College gave me its Excellence in Teaching with Technology Award. I think, I think it was looking for me as an example of the sinner who would, the sinner who would reformed and, and could be held up for everybody else. But, but that's an example of the person who is a kind of self-starter on, on, on change. There's, there's a big group in the middle who we often think are congenitally resistant to change. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and there's a lot of res research on people resistant to change. And, and I'll, what a lot of it says is usually they've had bad experiences of change before, uh, two or three of them. Sometimes they've committed a lot to change mm -hmm. and, and then been let down because the money's gone or the or the... Or, or the leaders moved over, there's another priority. So when you get serially let down, you know, it, it's like having three or four bad marriages. And unless you're, I don't know, Elizabeth Taylor, if you've ever heard of who Elizabeth Taylor yes. is, yeah. you're, you're, you don't keep going in for another one. Uh, and you think, <laughs> well, probably this marriage thing is, you know, I, sh I should kind of give it up and think about something else. And experiences of change are exactly the same things. And part of that experience of change is often that when something comes in, teachers are made to feel that everything they've done before is wrong. And, and now they need to be, so they need to stop being a teacher and they need to start being a facilitator mm -hmm. is the extreme view of this. Mm -hmm. And I, I think if we authentically have a position, as I've set out with technology, that it's an important part of how we can move forward. And we should be proficient in it. You shouldn't dismiss something from ignorance. You should dismiss something from a state of knowledge, which I think most teachers now have after the pandemic. It's a, it's a glorious moment. And, and you should uh, use it well when it works. And you should be critical and identify and manage and, and mitigate the risks where, 
where it, it, it could be problematic. But you'd say the same for physical activity or taking kids on outdoor adventures or any other aspect of, of, of teaching and learning. So it, it, it's, it's important to respect the teacher, to acknowledge what they've done, uh, what they've contributed, for them to see that a lot of that will continue. But this is, this is another set of arrows mm -hmm. to put in their quiver. And, 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 and then I think we can approach it in a, in a very different, and start it in a small way. Don't bring iPads or any other tablets into your school in one year when there were none the previous year, uh, because it causes chaos. Mm -hmm. and, and the chaos only convinces everybody that it's a hopeless idea and you should never have gone for it in the first place. So it, it's really not down mainly to the kind of moral position of of the person who's being changed. It's really up to the leaders of change to know how to work with people who don't immediately share their enthusiasms just to get up and run with it and go. Not everybody's ADHD like me. Uh, not everybody jumps into everything when it comes in and we have to learn with people who are different from us, including ones who are cognitively different and, and different in relation to change as well. Yeah, it's really fascinating. It's really fascinating. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a piece there around, you know, how to include them in the conversation, as opposed to thinking that they're just going to be difficult and, and resistant to, yeah. to it. And, and look, so much, no doubt, is about them feeling whether or not they're relevant. I mean, that's often happens when change occurs. Yeah. We often ask ourselves whether we're relevant. You know, that piece that you mentioned a moment ago about the voicemail is interesting. I mean, people who know me know that, that I'm a huge lover of technology. And as an art and design teacher, particularly in the design area, technology has been an important element of how we deliver so much of our learning because it's part of an yeah. industry requirement. But I remember um, as the two I see in, in, in a uh, independent Catholic school here in Melbourne, when they when the they came to me and said we want to set up your voicemail, I said I don't want a voicemail, because I wanted someone to answer the phone, a Correct. human to answer yeah. the phone, and I didn't think about it from the context that you did about not putting someone out of a job. I actually thought about it from the context of an encounter, that when when a parent or a member of the public or or a student or someone outside of the school contacted the school and wanted to connect with me. I wanted them to have a human voice with that. Now, yeah. now, not every time did they eventually come through to me because the PA or the executive assistant could actually solve whatever their crisis was or what their inquiry was or whatever their problem was, you know? And, and I felt that that was a better way to build community and trust yeah. uh, than, than a voice message that I might get to in two days' time because of the busyness of my schedule. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just a very interesting observation. The last question from me before I hand it over to Phil, because I know he's, he's, he's uh, chopping at the bit to ask you some more kind of purpose-based questions. That's the whole focus of our, our um, theme this time round, is that I actually have started reading The Five Paths of Student Engagement uh, yeah. by, by Shirley and yourself. And so, so first of all, thank you. Thank, thank you for continually sharing your thoughts with us. And you've, you've been doing this in your entire career uh, uh, and, and it is a, such a gift to us as educators and leaders in education to continually engage with, with your thinking uh, and, and ideas. One of the things that, that struck me was this notion that active engagement is this new frontier of, of student achievement. And it's really clear as I'm reading your book, and I'm not finished it yet, but as I'm reading it, what's really clear to me is that there's a strong 
emphasis on the interdependence between well-being and learning and success. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit to our listeners around how we can best reflect on engagement as this as this kind of mystery and magic and this meaning and purpose and this focus yeah. and mastery leading towards an individual's definition of their possibility or their success? Yeah, yeah. So it is possible to learn without being engaged. Mm-hmm. It is. Uh, many people have experience of it. They don't particularly relish it, but they... Anybody who's taken their law exams, their bar exams, and uh, to memorize tons and tons and tons of stuff in order to qualify knows what that looks like. And it applies in other professions as well. So you can just uh, grit your teeth and bear it and get on with it. But if you have any struggles or difficulties in the rest of your life that are distractions, then that approach to getting people to learn is an approach that particularly uh, penalizes those who are not as privileged in our society. And uh, that's why we have some of the inequities we do, I think. We have uh, ways of learning and examining that that some people can put up with and, and prosper in, and other people just find too hard, given all the other things that are going on. So following teachers who we work with in five states in the Pacific Northwest where they felt they felt the way they wanted to improve achievement in their schools in their rural schools like many schools in Australia many of them quite poor some indigenous some white working class some uh, migrant farm laborers that the way to get these kids succeeding was to engage them with the learning, engage them with their communities, to be not ashamed of their communities, but but to be proud of their communities in lots of ways, and to engage with their life and their life path and their life narrative as we're we're talking now. So engagement, we followed them in a way and started reading the literature, seeing what it had to say and so on. And we see now engagement, particularly during this pandemic when Lots of kids, including right now in Australia, are tuning out, are turning off, are sometimes walking away. 49,000 kids in the UK, nobody knows what's happened to them during the mm. pandemic. They've just right. gone off the radar altogether. And uh, it's going to be really hard uh, getting them back. So engagement, if, if we don't think about learning loss and gaps and testing and intervention as the way back, but we see engagement as the key, whatever it takes, then engagement is, we think, the lever for learning. Mm-hmm. And it is the window into well-being. And, and what we mean by that is, if you really try to pull out all the stops on getting the kids engaged in the ways that we describe, and you're still finding it difficult, you're, you're, you're really going to see where the well-being issues are in, in, in that kid's life, in their family, in their community, and in, in their physical and mental health, uh, whether or not they're bullied and, and, and so on. So uh, engagement kind of moves you both ways, both into the well-being and into the learning, and in a way unites the two and, and, and brings them together. Mm-hmm. As you've described, Adriana, there are many ways to get, there isn't just one way to get kids engaged, and teachers divide on this just like any other teachers do. I've just been with a group this morning for, for three hours, a few hours ago, and, you know, the, the high school teachers like mastery and focus. Let's have more mastery and focus, and, um, and they love what we have to say about suffering, that suffering is sometimes a necessary part of learning. 
you know, when you learn the guitar, your, your fingers get, get hard. It's painful as, until they harden up. And when you climb a mountain, there's, there's moments of, of great suffering. Now, you shouldn't have inflicted suffering. It should be your suffering. And the elementary teachers want to talk about, uh, the primary teachers talk about fun, happiness and joy and, and creativity and magic. And uh, what we're saying in this book, exactly as you said, it's not either or that uh, you, you want a, a repertoire, a, a toolkit of ways of engaging kids. Uh, not just one way, not think it's, it's all about relevance, profound purpose, it's all about mastery and focus, it's all about fun and happiness. But but at different moments, at different times, you'll draw on these things. And, and different kids will get engaged in different ways, but at least you'll engage all of the kids some of the time, probably, if you do that. You'll never engage all of the kids all of the time, but yeah. you'll engage all of the kids some of the time. Andy, so much of what you're talking about here, I mean, it, it picks up on what you were talking about earlier about teachers' self-concept around themselves. Are they a teacher? Are they a facilitator? Are they this or are they that? And it's just all these false binaries, these false arguments, when, of course, yeah. it's all a set of tools. And, you, you know, sometimes I talk about talk with teachers and, and leaders about playing a game of golf. And it's like, you know, you walk out in a golf club and you've got many, many clubs in your bag and you pick out a particular club for a particular hole based on the, the weather, the conditions and, and so on and so on and so on. And, you know, my father used to really enjoy going around a golf club with only a seven iron and he would do that to irritate me really, really, you know, considerably. But none of us do that, do we? We, 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 we choose the club for the moment and we can't identify with just one tool and say, this is our self-concept. And yet, you know, I'm look. I'm, I'm I'm particularly fuming at the moment about the Murdoch media in our country and its its capacity to take education and to turn it into a bitter debate, as if as if direct instruction and inquiry learning are mortal enemies of each other when they're just different pieces of the puzzle, you know. Yeah. And but but you know, it's a little bit like you know phonics versus whole word recognition. You know, don't don't tell an early childhood teacher which technique to use ask her which one or ask him which one they use and when they use it. That's, you know, so I, I sit and look at this sort of thing and, 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 I'm, and I'm listening to you talk about um, so much of the, that sense of belonging, which comes from engagement because, if you know, that's our research which says that if you can build a sense of belonging, then kids are more likely to achieve their potential and discover what is possible. And if they're achieving their belonging, that sense of belonging and achieving their potential and discovering what is possible, they're more likely to do good and right in the world. So it's got to start with belonging. You're not engaged. You're never going to feel as though you belong. And at the heart of that is relationship. At the heart of that is what we call character apprenticeship, which is, it, it is the role of the teacher. Like there's no teacher who, who engages successfully without some form of effective relationship. It might not necessarily be particularly close, but it's, it's that one where the apprentice goes to the, the expert and says, yeah. Show me who you are. Show me who you are so that I might, I might model myself on you. It's not your content. It is who you are. That's what I want to learn from. These are the essential competencies of how I learn, how I live and how I work and how I lead and, 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 and so on. Who are the people in your life who have been influential for you like that, who have helped you to become the best version of yourself? So uh, as you would say to me, there's a lot in that. So it's... Um... <laughs> It, it, uh, but, so let, let's talk about two, th let's try and divide that into two parts if we can. Uh, first is about belonging, which is, of course, one of our five paths of engagement. Mm -hmm. and, 
Uh, one of the things that particularly teenagers have, have really suffered from not having when, when they've been confined to learning at, at home because schools at their best build, build these senses of belonging amongst kids as communities, figuring out who they are, do, do, do people like them, what, what are their interests, where are they going in life? Uh, this is uh, so very important. The socialization part of schools is a so in person schools is a very important part of of what schools do. So th then there are, I think, um, two problems with with belonging. The obvious one is not belonging. Uh, kids who are marginalized, excluded, uh, bu bullied. Um, we know from around the world that school shootings usually take place not with kids who are kind of well integrated, happy, liked, but but usually excluded in uh, for some reason or other, or in some way or other, and have sort of fallen off the radar uh, a bit. So not belonging is is a big is a big problem and challenge. The wrong kind of belonging is 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 another challenge. Uh, belonging to hate groups uh, for. Yeah. Mm. Uh, there are, you know, these these are difficult questions for for schools and for teachers, but but there are questions about the wrong kind of belonging, and part of that is if your school is a bit of a homogeneous community, if you only build belonging in your school, how do your kids feel they belong with kids who are not like them? as well as kids who are. So you have a threefold system in Australia of independent and Catholic and uh, you know, re regular public schools. Mm -hmm. uh, some of them are quite privileged and uh, you know, could pick and choose who they, who they get. Uh, they tend to be increasingly good about uh, racial and ethnic diversity in terms of belonging with people who are different. But, but less good and sometimes not at all good about social class. So mixing, mixing kids who come from middle-class communities with kids who come from uh, poor communities. And uh, I think it's very important when you're growing up to, to not live in places and go to school in places which completely insulate you mm. from, from people who are very unlike you. And so I, I think this is a responsibility of parents, actually, to really think about that question and not just to explain it away by saying, oh, there's wonderful diversity in our school. I think it's a responsibility of schools uh, to think about who they recruit, where they recruit from, what kind of bursaries they have, how they share their privilege with, with other kinds of kids and communities. Uh, how they collaborate with other schools and communities who are different from theirs. So mm -hmm. if you're in a privileged school, don't necessarily go and work in Pakistan to help um, people who don't have much, but, you know, go four miles away and, uh, and start, start helping kids in poor communities in, in your own city as well. So the, the, the wrong kind of belonging is also a challenge, and I think it's important to inquire into and to think more deeply about that question too. So I'm going to come back to the relationship question in a moment because I think you've answered that first one really nicely. How do we best help young people to belong in the right way in their school or their learning community? What are, give, me, give me two things that a chalky listening right now could hang on to. Well, I should answer the question you gave me first. There have been some very important mentors in my life, but I don't think 
I don't think because of my limitations as a human being coming from a working class background and just desperately trying, you know, for years and years and years to swim against the tide well, well into adulthood that uh, I wasn't aware that my mentors were mentors when they were mentors for me. And I regret that. And uh, I've, if they're still alive, I've written to pretty much all of them or sat with them and talked to them, even the ones who are a bit difficult sometimes, uh, and thank them for what they did for me rather than whining about what they didn't. And, and I, I think we're better now at, at being self-conscious as to what our responsibilities are, both for mentoring and for being mentored as well, that, that this becomes a more deliberate relationship. So I think many young people are better at knowing what they need and who they need it from and not being afraid of approaching people and asking them for support and for help. And I think mentors themselves are more aware of their responsibilities for bringing along our next next generations. And certainly in the last, uh, uh, people tell me I've all, you know, I've done that way, way, way back intuitively. And uh, I think in recent years, I've done it more deliberately and, and hopefully more effectively and positively impacted more, more people. What, what does that mean for you as uh, a teacher? It, it means uh, some of the biggest impacts you have will be with the smallest things that you say. And you'll sometimes forget that you've said them, but people will remind you 20 years later of how transformative that one sentence was that made a child believe they had something rather than they didn't. That their bizarre set of skills actually could be converted into a career. If they're always wisecracking from the back of the class, they should think about going into comedy, for example. So don't make mentoring a one-on-one, sit-down, scheduled conversation only, but choose your words carefully, always with everyone, and act with integrity and consistency. And if you can, treat everyone in the same, in the same way. Uh, I write in my memoir that in a social event, I'm as likely to, to talk to the bar staff for, for 30 minutes as I am to a $2 million, potential $2 million donor. And uh, that's cost me sometimes. But as far as you can, try and be pretty much the same uh, in, in a deep sense with, with everyone around you. I, I think that, that's the first thing. And, and the second thing is mentoring doesn't mean replicating yourself. It, it doesn't mean trying to make little clones of you. So I think you'll find almost no one in the world who is a replicant of me or some idea that I've had because I really encourage learners I work with to be self-determined, to find their own path, to take notice of the paths that, that I followed and other people have followed, but really to understand the quest is to find their own path and all, have more than... Always mentor more than one person and always be mentored by more than one person because that that then puts the responsibility on you to, to find that path built on the knowledge and advice that you're receiving. So, Andy, in there, I'm, I'm, I'm hearing you in terms of using that relationship and that conversation both in a formal and informal sense. That that's, 
this is how we get young people to identify and claim their pathway and put it in practice. And that's the purpose piece. You know, it comes out through the relationship and you, you draw the connection out in that way. What have you learned in your career that's most useful that you can share in terms of helping young people to lead lives that are well-lived and purposeful? We're, we're getting probably getting very, very close. In fact, we've possibly gone over the time for this, but we've just really been enjoying the conversation. So maybe, maybe if you can just give, give, give us a little, give us a little uh, just a little nugget about how we help young people lead lives that are well-lived and purposeful. If, if you're choosing a career uh, or a line of work, don't, don't be drawn mainly by the money or the prestige or the status. Uh, choose something that you're passionate about that may not have an awful lot of money at first, like a musician, for example, or a teacher, but do it really, really well. So once you've chosen it and, uh, you know, works hard enough when you do have a passion, it's it's impossible when you don't. And, and, and then follow that and follow that with complete professionalism and, and the relentless pursuit of excellence in what you do. And, and many things will come to you, including money, uh, eventually. It just won't come to you till a lot later. But life is long, not, not life is short. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there's times for these to fall into place. And you will reach a point where you feel uh, probably you're comfortable, um, not necessarily opulent, but, but, but comfortable. And, and you've spent most of your working years feeling uh, fulfilled, um, successful, and useful. The most important thing for me, I think, is getting up in the morning and feeling I'm still useful to people in 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 some way or other. And uh, when that stops, I'll still get up in the morning, but but I'll get up and do something else. This is my final question to you, Andy. What legacy do you want to leave behind? I'll, I'll give you a small example first, and then you, you can take what you want from that. I, I've been on the Appalachian Trail this last week. Right. Um, I do it in sections. It's a particularly hard section, actually. I, I walked one day alone. The, the path was obscured by a massive logging operation, and I had to sleep out on the mountain overnight with no sleeping bag or tent in the pitch dark. That was kind of interesting. And this week, it's been my nine-year-old grandson's uh, birthday. He's uh, been with his dad and his family rather than his mum and his family mainly, although there was a time when they, they came together. He knows I go out on the Appalachian Trail and I like I like adventures and we talk about that. And I took a picture of, for him, uh, it, it, it was just sitting there for me, of a spider in a web at dawn with the sunlight casting down on it. It was mm. absolutely beautiful. He's terrified of spiders. So I sent it to him for his birthday. And I said... Uh, Jackson, I, I took this photo for you because there is often beauty even in the things that we fear. And if we can learn to see that beauty more, we will come to fear those things less. And I got a response. Now, he's only nine, so, you know, the, so not all of this may sink in. Yeah, but, yeah. But I got a little reply from him today, and it, it just said, thanks, you know, thanks, Grandad. And he said, I'm only afraid of big spiders now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the school I went to as a kid, uh, it's a primary school. It's one of the poorest parts in England. 
Uh, I laid the foundation stone there a few years ago, and I was, it, it's one of the most lovely things that I've ever been asked to do. And I laid it with my best teacher, who was still alive, and um, inspired me to go into teaching. But, but legacies are not about buildings or foundation stones or uh, any conceits, I think, of, of that kind that they are your accumulated impact on, on individuals. And I would say any good teacher's legacy is as great or as small as mine, because you know, my books may or may not influence people, my talks may or may not influence people, my teaching may or may not. But, but teachers have minimally, you know, 30 kids a year, high school teachers have a lot more. Put that over a life, do the job well, and, and your legacy will be enormous. And you won't be able to count it, but you'll be able to count on it with confidence that you've had a life well spent. Wow, thank you very much. Andy, I know your book certainly influenced me, so I wouldn't discount, I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount the influence that our, that our writing and our thought leadership um, has as well because if we can't be in a classroom we can we can go beyond the classroom by by sharing our words yeah. um, and sharing our and sharing our thoughts and, and sharing our heart um, with the world you've done that for so many years now um, and you, you you've shared so much with us today it's been a it's been a real privilege you know we, we talk about we talk about the conditions for the new social contract of education we talk about that education being human-centered being technologically enriched being people and planet and place conscious and being intentionally purposeful and you, you are an exemplar of all of those sorts of things except you're much more than an exemplar you you emphasize the uniqueness of the individual and my 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 design teacher friend here often talks about the the fact that you know, every every person is home to a unique life and what a unique life you are leading and what an inspiration you are to us. Thank you so much for joining us on Game Changers today. It's been, a, it's been just a blast. Thanks, guys. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.